I have a Yamaha 2012 F350 dies after 15 seconds. Well, unfortunately, that's not a lot of information, but if I was a guessing person, I would say that it's most likely fuel, given that if you can start the engine and it runs for 15 seconds, you've got spark, you've got compression, the kill switch isn't a problem, you've got the handle in neutral because it'll actually start and run. Now, if it dies after 15 seconds, generally you're losing fuel pressure or you're running out of fuel. 15 seconds is not a lot of time, but if it's consistent, then you might have a clogged fuel filter, which means you're running out of fuel, basically. Like say your VST is creating fuel pressure on the bottom of the fuel pump inside the VST, there's a filter on that. So with the VST full, that fuel pump is able to pull fuel in it, make fuel pressure enough to having the rail full and the injectors behind that full of fuel. But then as soon as you run the engine after 15 seconds, all the injectors disperse all of that fuel that you have built up in the rail. And then because the bottom of the screen on the fuel pump inside the VST is dirty, it's not able to get any more fuel or enough fuel into the fuel pump to refill the fuel rail in order to supply fuel to your injectors. And that is, probably why it's dying after 15 seconds. Again, that's just a guess based on the number, the functions, the way the engine works. There could be tons of other factors. Usually I wouldn't say that something like a spark plug or anything else is going to mess that up. I was starting to say fuel filter, but I did mean the screen that's on the bottom of the high pressure pump that's inside the VST. Now it's not going to be like a low pressure pump or anything like that. Not going to be a water separator or anything like that because those generally, if those are a problem, problem with your water separator or anything like that, then the engine's going to run for a couple minutes because the VST is going to be full of fuel enough to run the engine and the engine's going to run until it empties out that VST. And because the water separator is your problem, it's not getting fuel to the VST to refill the VST in order to continue supplying fuel to the engine and let it continue running. My guess is that your F350 has a dirty VST and the high pressure pump, either there's something wrong with that pump or the screen on the bottom of it is dirty or something along those lines based on it'll actually run for 15 seconds. Now, Will McQueen, I've got a 2002 Honda 90 horsepower carbureted four stroke. Those things can always be very temperamental being a carbureted four stroke but that runs great during the summer and never have an issue starting during the hotter months. When it gets cold this time of year, I always winterize it because I paint, it's a pain to start in this colder weather. I've always wondered if I am doing something wrong at the ramp when it's colder, or maybe it's just the way it is with colder weather and carburetors. Any tips? Would love to get a few more weeks for fishing. What I would say is that a um, couple different things. Yes, it's going to be temperamental. So thinking about what's going on here, one thing that's possible, not saying that this is it, but is that you're still trying to run a summer blend of fuel when it's cold out. And I'll probably get this wrong, but the way I think I remember is you've got RVP, which is the read vapor pressure or something like that. And that's a rating that's on the fuel. So during the summer, it'll have a lower rating because it it's hot out. So it doesn't need to have the same burn ratio. You know, it doesn't need to be higher. It doesn't need to have help burning because it's hot outside. But when it's cold outside, what they'll do is most gasoline companies, they will add, I think it's butane to 
the fuel and they'll call it a winter blend, which allows the fuel to burn at a higher pressure, I believe. And like I said, I'm not an expert on fuel and the chemical makeup of gasoline, but this is the kind of the way I understand it and the way I think I remember it being that summer months have a low number of RVP, winter months have a high number of RVP, and that is because it, they want the fuel to be able to burn easier in the colder winter month. Now, if you're trying to burn a summer blend in the winter when it's cold outside, then your engine's gonna have trouble running, it's gonna have hard starting, and it's not going to burn the way you really want it to, now, especially on a carbureted four-stroke. So a carbureted four-stroke has, you know, TPSs and, and the ignition is based on a lot of other factors, but it's still using a carburetor. And when you think about, you know, the winter and cold air, cold air is denser than hot air. And the way a carburetor works is it uses a Venturi effect in order to atomize the fuel in the air. So basically it's using like a vacuum almost, and it's sucking fuel up when it sucks that up through your jets and all the other things inside the carburetor, it atomizes the fuel before it sends it into the cylinder. So if the air is denser, it's going to require more fuel to get that fuel to atomize with that denser air than it would in the summer when the air's thinner. I might not be a hundred percent on that because I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but what I would say is that the way I understand it, like a carburetor in the colder weather, usually it'll use the thermostat and it'll say, Oh, Hey, it's colder outside. So it will do like a warm up. And for like three minutes or however long it may be, the engine will go into a warm-up mode where it will add more fuel and enrich in your fuel mixture in order to combat this. And just in colder weather, that's kind of how it goes. So with your enrichener and it being colder outside, so on that 90, I don't know how many, on a 2002 90 horsepower Honda, I'm not a Honda expert, I don't know how many carburetors are on that engine, but my guess is that it's probably somewhere around three, maybe four carburetors on that on that setup. I don't know if that 90 is a three-cylinder or four-cylinder, but my guess is there's an enrichener on two of the carburetors, and the other two don't have an enrichener. And so... You know, you're getting enriched fuel into the cylinders, but to the cylinders is not getting enriching. And that's just kind of a cold startup. That's just what it is until the engine heats up and gets to operating temp. It's going to run rougher because it's carbureted and because it's a carbureted four stroke. That's just kind of how it is. Those are the only two things that I can think about that's going to affect that as far as colder weather and a carbureted engine where EFIs, they don't have that problem. You know, you got fuel injection. And so the computer is reading the atmospheric pressure and the barrow. It's reading the manifold pressure, which is the air pressure inside of the manifold. And then it is calculating based on a preset table of numbers on how long to open the injectors, which it gives it how much fuel gets into the cylinder and how much it burns. Not an issue with it, with an EFI. And that's why you don't see these you know, warm up modes and these cold start issues with an electronic fuel injection four stroke, but you do still see a cold, hard start, rough idle during cold winter months with a carbureted four stroke, because that's one of the downsides of a carburetor opposed to electronic fuel injection where everything's already mapped out, makes up for it. You know, it changes the timing. It changes the, the amount of fuel 
and everything based on the temp, the, the intake air temp, because it has a sensor for that. So it knows how cold it is. It knows what the atmospheric pressure is inside of the manifold. And then it, you know, the computer has a table that tells it what to do based on those numbers, which gets rid of the cold start problem. Three aces talking about keep salt away type products from drying on your outboard, especially in the hot sun. I would suggest absolutely any kind of chemicals or stuff like that on your cowling is going to be very, very hard. So degreasers, contact cleaner, um, salt away, any of those hard chemical products, you don't want to get that stuff on your cowling and you really don't want to let it dry on the cowling. And when he's talking about, you know, in hot temperatures, that's a problem because as soon as that chemical gets on the cowling, it dries out instantly and it starts to eat away at the clear coat and the paint. And so you're going to have a, a problem on the cowling where it's going to eat through the clear coat, eat through the paint, and you're going to have a spot of discoloration on your cowling because you got these chemicals on there and you didn't get them washed off quickly. So that's uh, something that is good to know and to discuss. Urban gaming, why do you freeze your sealants or silicones? So this is a video where we're talking about, you know, applying sealant. And the main thing about that is it's been my experience that when you put the sealants in the freezer, they tend to last longer. Obviously, everybody has a problem with keeping 4,200, 5,200, that kind of stuff. Uh, once you open the tube, it's like, you know, it's almost hard to make it last. And I have found that putting it in the freezer tends to seem to work because then it, it freezes it. But then when you bring it out, you let it sit in the sun for a little bit and it, it still goos up and it basically saves it from being a wasted tube of sealant once you open it up and hits the air and now all of a sudden you go to use it two months down the road and the whole tube is dried and it's worthless so that's just something that we kind of found gary a ron my yamaha outboard has left me stranded three times at of three out of three times brand new lemon that's a pretty bold statement to call it a lemon already but that's unfortunate sorry to hear that i wish you'd give us a little more information on the yamaha outboard left me stranded three out of three times um, I wonder what's going on with that because there's usually whenever you got a brand new engine, something like that, there's usually something else going on there that's potentially not even the engine's fault. I've seen plenty of things where you think about the build of a boat, a brand new boat, just because everything's brand new, brand new engine, brand new boat, all that stuff, just because everything's brand new doesn't mean it's all going to work perfectly. And especially when you've got such a process of putting a boat together where you've got different, you know, a team of people build the boat being the fiberglass and the paint and all that stuff. A team of people rig the boat, a team of people put all the fuel systems and all the bulkheads and all that other stuff in, into the boat. You got a team of people that rig it for the engine and everything. You got a team of people for your electronics, a team of people for the plumbing. Um, and then a team of people for the canvases, the upholstery, the seats, all that kind of stuff. So like you're going to have hundreds of hands on this boat, putting this thing together and then by the time it gets to you, you know, there could be an issue where this person, again, also you got people working. So what's this person that's working's life? You know, what's going on there? They just got a divorce. Are they having a bad day? Are they hung over? Like, is there a problem going on with some person that's just trying to get out of there? It's five o'clock, you know, just send some screws in it and let's go. So that's the unfortunate reality of the build of a boat. And I've seen all kinds of problems where you've got a brand new boat 
And it's no fault of the manufacturer or the engine or anything like that. It's just the fact that you've got this many people trying to create a product. And so let's say you've got somebody that puts the fuel lines in and when they pull the fuel line, it cut the fuel line. And now all of a sudden you've got an issue where the engine's running out of fuel. You think you might have a Yamaha problem, but really you got a boat problem because a fuel line accidentally got cut because there was a screw sticking out and it dragged across the screw, cut a little hole in, in the fuel line. Uh, it's not big enough to let fuel drip out into the boat, but it's enough for it to suck air and leave you stranded because the engine runs out of fuel. And I mean, on Yamaha, you should have a primer bulb. So if that was the problem, you could prime it up and start it up and be going on. But I also would like to know, you know, who's looked at it? Because obviously if it's left you stranded three times, that's a problem. And hopefully somebody, wherever you bought the boat, whoever the dealer is, like they should get a technician on this boat to figure out what's going on because it's, it's, it's highly unlikely to get a brand new lemon. Um, these days, you really don't see a straight up lemon. Like that's, that's, a, that's a big leap into a company being able to make a product that is a straight up problem. And I've seen a ton of things where like, uh, I've seen metal, metal pieces get in there into a base gasket. So when the power head got put on a little flake of metal was laying right there, power head got put on and it was leaking oil all over the, all over the place, all kinds of stuff like that. That doesn't really necessarily mean that the engine itself is a lemon, but it just means that it's a manufactured product. And Right now, the labor force and everything else is a problem. So, unfortunate to hear that. Um, Amit Osiris, so what tips would you have for an OX66 that cuts out at anything past half throttle? Entire fuel system is new. Um, well, that's kind of like interesting that you've already jumped into replacing everything on the fuel system on the engine to include top side fuel lines haven't changed the fuel lines coming from the tank however it's a 99 ox 66 saltwater series i can run her out to half throttle maybe a tad more boat doesn't have a functioning rpm gauge so can't really tell what rpm well on an ox 66 we keep talking about a lot of older stuff lately everybody's asking carburetor problems and um 20 25 year old engines so a lot of old stuff lately but on an OX66, so if you're running up to half throttle, I'm guessing that you're maybe making it to 4,000. Um, you didn't say anything about any alarms or anything like that. Not really sure if you really have a fuel problem or not. For one, I'd put a clear hose on there and make sure that you're getting fuel from the boat to the engine. If you put a clear hose on the fuel line right at the engine, maybe after the water separator, and take a look at it to make sure that you don't have an air leak or you're getting aerated fuel to the engine and it's running out of fuel past a certain RPM, then I would also be looking into what exactly was changed on the engine as far as the fuel system goes. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting. Something else on an OX66, I can't really remember exactly what it was. I know there's one thing. So if the engine thinks it's overheating, like if you've got a bad thermo sensor or something like that, that the engine thinks it's getting too hot, it's going to limit you to, I think, like 4,000 RPM. And then there's something else on an OX66 that with the thermostat, I can't remember hundred percent. I want to say that if the thermostat goes bad, then the, like if it's stuck, the engine will do something where it will like raise the RPM, the idle RPM, maybe that's it. Or yeah, I think it was a, was a stuck thermostat will give you a high idle, but that's not your problem. You're saying that you're only going halfway throttle. 
before you go into looking at having a bad TPS or a computer or something like that, I would definitely verify to make sure you don't have a fuel issue being that you're not running out of fuel basically by having a restricted water separator or a bad um, anti-siphon valve in the boat feeding the fuel to the engine, something like that, because you really don't want to get into switching out and changing out your computer, your TPS, or anything else that's, you know, along the lines of the ignition system because you're not getting past half throttle, I think is what you said. Stanley Davis, will this method work on a on the Bravo 2? That was talking about how to take out a prop shaft seal, like a like a hack that a lot of people do is a couple different ways is, you know, they will um, put screws into the seal so you can pull it out or you can roll the seal in from the outsides along the carrier so you don't mess with the prop shaft and you can get a seal puller in there to pull them out. Just a lot of different hacks that you can do to get a prop shaft seal or even like other seals out of it, out of a position like a main bearing seal, crank seal, something like that. You can do these things to get these seals out without having to disassemble everything, especially on older stuff. On a Bravo 2, I'm not 100% exactly. I don't work on a lot of stern drives. It's been a while since I've even touched an Alpha or a Bravo drive. So whether or not that you can pull that seal out from the, from the, without pulling the carrier, not really sure. You just have to look at it, take the prop off, take the thrust washer off. And if you can see the seal there, then yeah, you could take it out from the outside. But if it's got a lip over it, that is encasing the seal, which there's a lot of like most newer Mercury's all have that you can't just pull the seals out because you have to pull a little carrier because they get put in from the inside out and that's what helps their seals last a lot longer um honestly it takes a long long time for you to get a bad prop shaft seal on a mercury outboard because of the way the carrier is designed and it it's encased so on the outside of the carrier there's like a lip that goes out and then over and then the seals on the inside of that. So the seal is super protected. Whereas everything else, Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, all of those basically have the seal on the outside. There is no protection. Like Yamaha has the thrust washer that's got the thread, the line catcher, whatever they call it, which is like a lip. So if you get fishing line or stuff on there, it'll wind around the thrust washer. But by and large, a lot of those, the seals are exposed. So it's a lot quicker for you to need to do a prop shaft seal on those engines than it is for you to do it on a mercury but whether the bravo is like that the bravo 2 not 100 you need to pull your prop and take a look at what you got going on there cr dorado i have an old mid 60s johnson 5.5 horsepower seahorse here we go new talking about a lot of older stuff here 1960 so mid 60s let's, uh, let's say that's 65 that's 35 plus almost 24 now you're talking about a 59, almost a 60 year old engine. That's incredible. So wait, was my, my math right there? Mid 60, 65, that's 35 plus 25. Yeah, 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 59. 5.5 horsepower seahorse. Would you happen to know where I could find another for spare parts if I need some? My father gifted this to me on my 10th Christmas. Obviously it needs to be overhauled don't know what I'm going to find. Don't know what I'm going to find. Um, finding any parts for a 1960 engine is going to be difficult. 
you're obviously going to have to be calling around and do some research on this one. I would say trying somewhere like Lake Lanier uh, Marine Liquidators, just because they have just tons and tons and tons of outboards that are like older like that, that they might have parts for something like that. And then other than that, you're going to need to figure out what part you need. And then it's going to just be scouring the internet. So you're looking on eBay, you're looking on everywhere you can find, and you're probably going to end up finding that you got to buy a lot of aftermarket stuff because no, you know, no one's making stuff for a 1965 Johnson 5.5 horsepower seahorse. Also, I would be concerned about how much you put into this thing because for a 60 year old outboard and a 5.5 horsepower engine, let me just look this up here. So right now you can get a six horsepower Suzuki for fifteen hundred bucks. You can get a five horsepower Mercury for fourteen hundred dollars. Um, you can get a six horsepower for five hundred dollars. Like I would watch how much money you put into this engine, unless it's like straight up a nostalgia thing where it's like it's a vintage, it's antique. You want to rebuild it for like, you know, whatever you're trying to like, just rebuild it for the fun of it, to learn about it, to have it like, you know, as something. But if you're trying to rebuild it as like a, you know, reliable outboard, you're going to be using all the time. Then I'd be, I'd be leery of how much money you put into it again, because you can go out and find a, you know, here is a Yamaha four stroke, four horsepower, for $480. So just be cautious of what you're doing. You don't want to go out and spend, you know, $2,000 trying to outsource all these parts for a 60 year old engine when you can go buy a whole outboard for 500 bucks. Just a little, you know, disclaimer there. You know, I understand that it was given to you from um, your father. Obviously, you probably want to rebuild it for that fact. Like, you guys have this engine that's 60 years old, been in the family forever. So rebuilding it other than finding parts for it. Yeah. You're going to be scouring the internet, figure out what you need. And then just kind of looking around great Lake skipper. Um, I'm trying to think of what other places have parts like that, or are going to even have something like that. I mean, we're talking again, 60 years. So then the other one's going to be checker Marine. Uh, I don't know if they got really that many old outboards, but it's also another place that's got ton and tons of stuff. And they might have something that you could dig around and find. Again, that was Lake Lanier Marine Liquidators and Checker Marine. Those are the two places that I'd look. And then also figure out what parts you need. Scour the internet looking for that part. Dr. Jim, what would a commercial fisherman do? Talking about running wide open throttle on that. Dude, you're going to run it however you need to run it. Like run how your clients want you to run. We know tons of commercial people that run wide open throttle all the time, but then at the same time, a lot of people commercially, they, you know, the weather doesn't allow you to do that or whatever, or maybe even the clients don't really want that because there's a lot of commercial people that charge for the fuel. So like, let's say it's 1200 bucks for the day plus fuel. That's how a lot of commercial fishermen do like sport fish, stuff like that. You will do, you know, the client pays for the fuel. So if the client doesn't want to burn that much fuel, then you're going to have to run it easy because you're looking at fuel economy. If you're paying for the fuel, I would be looking at your books and how much money you're making and how much you're spending on fuel. Maybe not running wide open throttle all the time because you're trying to save fuel. But then at the other time, whenever you're trying to get to a spot, whatever, 
run wide open. So I would just run it however you need to run it to make sure that your clients have the best experience possible. So that way you can build your brand, build your reputation and make your clients happy so you can keep running trips. So running wide open throttle or running a cruising speed, saving fuel, you know, you're gonna have to determine that based on the clients that you got and what you're going for that day. Cause I'm sure there's tons of times where you're just going bottom fishing or whatever. So you're going to a close spot. You're not running way offshore or something like that based on your client, because they're not trying to go and get tuna, mahi, maybe they want to go and get some snapper or whatever. So a lot of that's just going to be, you're going to run the engine based on what the client wants and what the experience is that they're looking for. And you got to make sure you provide that experience to get the best brand that you can get to make sure you keep running trips. Row Newell's where I am, my 95 where I am, my 95 2300 Hydrosport center console is a highly sought after boat. And when you find one for sale, they usually fetch good money. I have had people randomly stop by looking to see if I would sell it, even had offers on the water. Anyway, here in Long Island, I find the Hydrosports brand hold a pretty good value. Yeah, I think they do hold a good value. Talking about, again, boats that hold value and what boat you would buy to flip. So that kind of goes back to what I was talking about, how you're going to have different types of boats, different brands of boats in different eras. So in the seventies, you got certain boats in the eighties, you got certain boats in the nineties, you got certain boats. And I would definitely say those nineties hydrosports definitely fetch a good, good money. Mid two thousands boats, maybe not so much. A few brands are going to, or a few models are going to fetch good, but there are other, other models that aren't really that good because Hydrosport was going bankrupt at that point in time. And that's when they got sold, bought out, and then were turned into the HCB Customs or the Hydrosport Boats Customs, Hydra Custom Boats Works or whatever it's called, HCBs. That's kind of like when that happened. So some of those mid-2000s boats aren't the greatest. They were kind of slapped together in a way. But then after that, when they became the HCBs, they're, they're, they're great boats. Now, again, that 95-2300, phenomenal boat really really good value matt williams i work for fwc and we run our boats pretty hard we have lots of engines with high very high hours i think key to longevity is running the engine across the entire rpm range coupled with great maintenance that's what i'm saying man like that is exactly the that's it is running the engine in over the entire rpm spectrum and it runs evenly that's how you get even wear that's how you get the best out of the engine that's why the break-in period for most engines have always been varying the RPMs. I've heard a lot of people talk about different things about the break-in, whether you should do it or don't do it. I'm just going to go off of basically what is normally said. A lot of people say the break-in, oh, you just need to run it for 10 hours under a certain RPM range, and that's not really true. The basic, Basically, all brands in their break-in period go like this. They want you to run varying the rpms so that means that for the first two hours you're going to run say 10 minutes at a thousand rpm and then you're going to run 10 minutes at 1500 rpm then 10 minutes at 2000 rpm and then 10 minutes at 3500 rpm and you're going to continue every five ten minutes varying that rpm and not going wide open throttle for more than five minutes every hour and then don't do a lot of high idle time so basically 
in the first two hours, first 10 hours, you don't want to run the engine at idle for an hour. That's what they don't want you to do. They want you to break it in at varied RPMs for 10 hours with no more at wide open throttle than five minutes at a time. So really a break-in period isn't staying below a specific RPM. It is changing the RPM run 4,500 for 10 minutes, then bring it back to 35, then bring it up to 55, then bring it down to 15, then take it all the way to wide open throttle and run for five minutes, and then just continue varying those RPMs for 10 hours. That is the most common break-in period. And so if you think about it, if that's what they want you to do for break-in period, then that's what you're going to want to do over the life of the engine. So running evenly let's say at a hundred percent you're running 20 percent of the time and at wide open you're running 20 percent at trolling 20 percent at idle 20 percent at mid-range like you're varying across the whole spectrum which is generally when you pull a download what it looks like most of the recreational people when you pull a download again very minimal time spent at wide open throttle most recreational people are looking at fuel economy and they're looking at the ability that they have to run the engine this is kind of a discussion. I, I've actually, we got a couple comments down here about this, that talking about the RPM and the horsepower range. So generally when we're talking about not being able to run wide open throttle, you're talking about larger engines. You're talking about larger boats going offshore or your recreational guys with engines that are 115 and up. Once you get down into talking about these little engines, like, um, mega adventure overhang four seven what about a small outboard a 2.4 3.3 and a five horsepower small outboards should it run at max rpm because of it being so slow by and large but most people are running like if you're running on a dinghy or something the engine's maxed out all the time like they're running wide open throttle all the way because again it's so slow and the death of most of these small engines is you don't see a five horsepower that blows the powerhead. When you see a small engine that with a blown powerhead, it is because of lack of oil, lack of maintenance, water ingestion, um, and things like that. Poor fuel. That's what kills these small engines. These people on sailboats that are that have a 10 horsepower, 15, whatever on their dinghy and they're going back and forth, when they leave their boat, that thing hits wide open throttle and all the way till they get to the dock and then they shut it off and then they go off in the shore, get their groceries, whatever they're doing, hang out, and then they get back on the dinghy, wide open throttle, back to the boat. Same thing for small lakes and stuff. You guys are running the engines wide open throttle all the time and you don't hear about blown powerheads. The whole conversation was that someone was telling someone else that because you're running the engine at wide open throttle, you're prematurely wearing out the powerhead. You don't see that. You don't see a, a, a 9.9 with a blown powerhead because the engine was run at wide open throttle and everybody is running those engines maxed out all the time, even up to like a 35. I think there's another one, Grancet Otos. I'm, I'm not sure. Let's consider a 25 horsepower Johnson. It is a detuned 35 at full throttle. It is producing less than two thirds of the power at full throttle. So you can't run a 35 at more than half throttle, right? I have a 35 and I run it at full throttle all the time. And it is, it is a 1976 and still running fine. There's like, there's a proven case right there of 
running an engine white i mean 1976 that's 24 and and let's go ahead and call it 2024 today so you're talking about 48 years at wide open throttle like it's you don't blow power heads because you're running wide open throttle you blow power heads because they run lean meaning you're not getting your oil mixture right you're running out of oil uh, and that's causing two other issues. You're overheating the engine. So when you overheat it, it does all kinds of things. Like it warps the metal, it warps valves. It wore like the valve covers, plastic parts, all that stuff. Like you've got big problems when you overheat an engine to, you know, a certain temperature or for an extended period of time. Those are the things that's going to blow a power head, not running at wide open throttle. If you've got a five horsepower engine and you run it wide open throttle all the time, they run forever. Again, the problem with the little engines is people don't service them. They've got this little engine, it sits on the tender, and then it lives in the water all the time. It doesn't get an impeller for 20 years. They're running poor fuel in it, never checking the oil, and those kinds of things. That's what ends up killing them, especially like carburetors and stuff like that. That's what the problem with all the little engines is, is you get a little engine, most of the time, oh, it won't run. Well, that's because it hasn't run in six months. It's been living in the water and the carburetor is now trashed. And that's why it won't run because it's lack of use. So that's kind of my two cents or my little rant on the running wide open throttle. And it's kind of a horsepower thing where these little engines are, you don't have the ability to run in the lower engines. But then when we talk about higher horsepower, like, you know, 90s, 115s, 150s and up, 300s, 600s, like the the idea that these people can run wide open throttle all the time, like bass boats, those they're running as much wide open throttle as they can. But at the same time, if they've got trolling motors, they're running wide open throttle to the spot and then they're putting in the trolling motor and then they're they're doing their thing right there, turning on the engine, pulling the, the trolling motor and then wide open throttle to the next spot. They are the basically the ones that you will find that have the high RPM at wide open throttle. But by and large, the rest of the recreational world, they don't have the ability to run wide open throttle all the time. So I guess maybe there should be a horsepower disclaimer in there. Um, Sawyer's dad says carburetor. <laughs> what is this? 1975? Um that's kind of what I was thinking. There's just tons of there's because we've got a lot of questions about older engines lately. There's been a lot of OX 66s, HPDI questions, the carbureted four stroke question, a lot of 20, 25 year old engines, but yeah, 1975, um, just kind of what it is. You know, there's a lot of older engines out there. So we're going to talk about whatever we can talk about. Jeff Battlefish, my little 70 horsepower Yamaha four stroke burns 3.5 gallons an hour at 4,300 RPM and 5.5 gallons an hour at 5,300 RPM. According to my NEMA 2000, that's why I rarely run over 4,500 RPM. 22 to 25 mile an hour is plenty fast for my fishing. Another one, I mean, it, the cases go on and on when you kind of like look at the people and, and how you really run your engine because it's based on you, where you fish, what you do on the water, how you run the boat. I mean, all those things are going to factor in. And like we were talking about with a commercial guy, like if the commercial person, like if your client wants to save time and just they don't care about the fuel, run it wide open throttle because you're going to burn a ton of fuel. Whereas, you know, Jeff over here, He's only going to want to run 43, 45 because he's looking at his fuel economy. He's, he's fine taking an extra 20 minutes to get to a spot 
if he's going to save 50 bucks on his fuel burn. So that's kind of one thing that, you know, it's a hit or miss on whether or not how you want to run it, whether you care about fuel or you don't care about fuel. But as far as the engine goes and the wearing of the powerhead, that's not really an issue. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about one more thing though, and then we'll close it down. So Filbert, I currently work as a police officer and I'm set to retire at 45 years old. I restore boats in my spare time and get out on the water every chance I get. What job in the marine industry would you recommend as a retirement gig? Well, um, dude, this is going to be all about you. This is like personal to you and what you want to do, what you find enjoyable and how you want to do. For me, like, like we were talking about, if you're retiring and you're retiring at 45, so you did it right. Whatever you did, you did it right. So now you're able to retire at 45. And now you've got what everybody wants. You got time. That's the freedom of retirement is that you got your time back. So as far as a retirement gig in the marine industry, you know, there's tons of, there's tons of different things. You can be a parts guy at a, at a marina. You can be a service person, like a service writer, service manager, parts manager, parts apprentice, whatever. You could be a boat salesman. You could be like, if you want to turn wrenches, you could be a mechanic. Like you can pretty much do whatever you want to do, but it's personally going to be about you. I don't know if you really want to retire and then go work for someone else because then you lose that freedom of your time. And that's kind of like the whole point of retirement is that, I mean, we've kind of, we're kind of building this out right now in the boaters program where we've gotten so many people that are asking about how they can become a mechanic or get into the Marine industry. So I'm actually building a whole thing inside the boaters program to help people to, to decide this, but it is going to be based on you. And for you, I would even say that you're already flipping boats on the side, like you're redoing boats. So is there based on you, do you have a garage? Do you have a building? Do you have all the tools, that kind of stuff? Do you really like wrenching? Cause if that's the case, then maybe just doing four or five boats a year is going to be enough of a gig to supply whatever it is that you want. Like if you can get a, find a boat, clean it up, not have to do too much to it and make a couple grand on the boat, then maybe that's what you want. But I would say that you might not want to go work for somebody else because you lose that freedom. And if you can make enough money to support whatever it is that you want to do, then maybe just flipping boats in your garage is going to be what you want to do or a building it, depending on what your situation is. I don't know if you've got a spot or whatever, but then also at the same time, you could be doing like, you know, selling parts on eBay and doing stuff like that. So that kind of gets you into the world where you buy a boat, you kind of fix it up, you kind of take some parts off of it, you do some upgrades to it, you sell the old parts on eBay, you sell the boat, you make a couple grand on the parts and the and the and the boat itself. And maybe that's enough to where okay, it's Tuesday and it's beautiful outside, so you can go on the water. Whereas if you work for somebody else, Tuesday, you got to go to work. So you're kind of like you lose, you're not really retired. So I don't know if really a retirement gig is, you know, that's what you're thinking. You might not want to get into that, but as far as getting into the industry, there's tons of opportunity. There's plenty of jobs out there if you want a job, but I'm thinking that you might want to do something based on what you like to do and something that's going to make enough money to feed your boating habit and then allow you that freedom to still if Thursday afternoon is calm out that you can just stop what you're doing, hook up your boat and take it out and, and go do what you want to do based on the weather. 
because the weather kind of determines in the boating world on when the weather you can go out, whether you can't go out. And if you can go out, then you want to have that freedom to be able to go out. And then when it's not good out, then you can do your gig and make your money. Anyway, that's enough for this week. So we'll see you next week. Check out the boaters program at bornagainboating.com. And also the, if you want to talk about a, a subject, comment below, email us, askbab at bornagainboating.com.